This podcast is also part of a pod course, which is available for credit on speechtherapypd.com. All you need to do is register for the course, complete the requirements, and you will receive credit. Speechtherapypd.com is a video continuing education company, a certified ASHA CE provider. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MSCCC SLP, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast was, like most creative processes, birthed from a combination of a several cups of coffees and, honestly, even more questions posed by a series of impassioned graduate students that I've had the pleasure of supervising over the last several years. First Bite's mission? It's to answer those questions that we've all had, but we've either been too afraid to ask or we didn't have the subject matter expert saved to our own personal speed dials. So, do you too have more questions and answers when it comes to treating your medically complex and fragile pediatric patients? Are you unsure if the signs and symptoms that you're observing are indicative of an allergy, maybe an underlying GI issues, or could they possibly be neurologically driven? How many questions do you really have for that registered dietitian regarding the formulas prescribed and the flow rate through that patient's G-tube? Have you ever been consulted for a quote-unquote difficult latch only to find out that the mother is exclusively breastfeeding, but you've never nursed a little one or worked with the breastfed patient before? And what about functional communication? Are you so over flashcards, but you need advice on how to get started with core vocabulary with a non-speech-generating device or how to find the right fit for a speech-generating device? Do you have additional worries about the basic day-to-day running and documentation of your private practice? How do you go about obtaining referrals or even documenting that note so that the insurance company deems it medically necessary? If you answered yes, well, then come join me, Michelle Dawson, for this dynamic podcast presented by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Who am I, you ask? Well, I'm a self-described SLP geek with, as my family says, a touch of the ADD and ADHD. I have a passion for serving the least of these, namely the most complex and involved pediatric patients in their natural environment through my private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, in the Columbia, South Carolina metro area. I also have had the pleasure, and currently still am, traveling the country where I lecture on best practices for pediatric dysphagia and functional language acquisition delivered through an early intervention natural environment model. Are you still intrigued? Then come join me as I interview some amazing folks. And don't forget that you can submit questions for a Q&A or interview request topics to me via email at firstbite at speechtherapypd.com or on our Facebook page. And also check out our website, drop a review, subscribe to obtain those coveted ASHA CEUs. All right, folks, let's get right to it. Welcome back to First Bite, Fed, Fun, and Functional Resources for the Pediatric Clinician. I'm your host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP, and the topic of today falls in the Fed category. And this is one that's extra special to me, as tonight we are interviewing the student turned almost clinician, 
who planted the seed to make all this possible. On that note, I'm proud to introduce our guest speaker today, Miss Erin Forward, originally of Rochester, New York, and currently of Greenville, South Carolina. I had the pleasure of first meeting Erin when she helped out my own littlest one when he sat for a hearing test at her university clinic. She was the student clinician assigned to him, and that was the first hearing test he passed. So whoop, whoop for bear. Um, subsequently, Miss Erin and I's paths, we crossed a few weeks later when I found out she was going to be my student for clin um, clinician for her summer practicum of 2017. Needless to say, she left a heck of an impression on me. Uh, she asked some of the most insightful and challenging and compassionate questions regarding the little ones that we worked with. And this podcast was kind of sort of her idea. So it seemed only fitting that she get roped into it too. So on that note, Miss Erin, lay it on me, my dear. How in the world did we pull you this far south? Well, first, thank you for that introduction. Um, <laughs> I, growing up in Rochester, New York, I definitely was not a fan of the cold. So I first um, went to University of Pittsburgh for undergrad, where I got my degree in psychology and communication science and disorders. I kind of fell into um the SLP role. I didn't really know that's what I wanted to do, but Pitt had a great program and I was exposed to it and really lucky to do spend some time at the Children's Institute of Pittsburgh, where I kind of fell in love with kids with developmental disabilities. I then ventured way more south because Pittsburgh wasn't warm enough and found myself at the University of South Carolina, where I knew from the beginning I was going to get a lot of great experience in different settings, and it really made my choice easy to go there. I then was very lucky to have my summer uh, practicum with Michelle. I knew I loved kids with developmental disabilities, but wasn't really sure exactly what I wanted to do with them. And it was a time when I really needed a push to figure out what my niche was. And working with her, it just clicked. And she made me fall in love with pediatric dysphagia and wanting to advocate for those children. And that's what landed me here today. Yay! Um, for folks, for if y'all don't know the backstory, um, we were sitting outside of a patient's house, I think that had canceled for like, I don't know, the umpteenth time having coffee, figuring out what to do with the next dead space and um, our schedule. And you suggested that we, you know, we should do a podcast because there's a lot of people that have a lot of questions out there. So um, a couple weeks later, we stewed on it, uh, came up with the idea for the title about a year ago and then stewed on it a little bit farther, and then I chickened out, and Aaron was the voice of reason and um, fearlessness, and a year later, here we are. So um, I'm indebted to you, lady. I'm indebted. So, all right. Well, on that note, um, the roles are reversed for me tonight. I am answering the questions and in the hot seat, and you get to do the Q&A. And because I know you have had some phenomenal um, uh, practicum sites, especially up there in Greenville um, this current term, um, we're going to volley back and forth. Okay. So I hand, hand the mic to you, babe. 
All right. We'll start with what does pediatric dysphagia and feeding therapy look like in home health? So um, first and foremost, we are flying blind about 97% of the time. Um, I'm, I'm grateful if I get a script that says pediatric dysphagia eval and treat because Lord knows I've gotten the ones that say pediatric aphasia and I'm like, fantastic. Let's work on order retrieval and they're six weeks old. <laughs> so I'm sure there's other people out there that have had the same thing, teachable opportunity with our uh, physicians. Um, uh, I rarely, if ever get medical records. So I may walk in the door and find out the patient has down syndrome because I look at the child. Um, so I have gotten in the habit of assuming aspiration until it's proven otherwise, especially for the complex cases that I have. Um, and I have gotten in the habit of from the second that my referral coordinator gets the script, um, I hound and beg and plead to have access to the records because a lot of these kids have, they're on medications that can cause dysphagia, like a lot of our um, seizure medications. Um, they're on a lot of medications that can cause constipation that combine to make them not want to eat, like our um, our GERD medicines. Um, and sometimes the formulas alone that they're on, lovely um, uh, corn-based, sugar-based formulas can trigger constipation. Because, you know, it's not actually a food. <laughs> Just putting that thought out there. <laughs> But um, it's it's dynamic. Um, when I walk in the door, I start out the gate by asking um, the families um, to show me what they're doing. Because if I walk in and immediately start doing like a diagnostic eval, then I don't understand baseline, um, what it actually looks like. So I want to watch and observe first, first seek to understand before I intervene and make edits accordingly. Um, does that, does that, you've, you've seen me in action. What, what do you think? Um, I think that for as far as home health, the thing that you benefit from the most is you've created a community. Ah, well stated. And I think that, especially with pediatric dysphagia, people may feel like they're on an island. In home and health. So, yes. And so how, how do you, with that lack of medical records and with going in blind, how do you create that community? Um, that, that's, you're right. That's probably the hardest part of what we do. It's incredibly isolating. I mean, if I didn't have students all the time in the car, I'd be alone all day long. Um, I requested a lot of co-treatments, especially in the beginning, especially um, even now when I get a new patient on my caseload. I'll do a co-treatment with the early interventionist because, yeah, they may not, I mean, they're not going to have the skill set that the speech pathologist has, but they shouldn't because they have a totally different skill set. Um, there's two really good companies here in town that, uh, that I work with pretty closely. And the early interventionists that I work with for one company they will get the medical records from me because um, I've asked them and we've shared patient, patients that were so 
um, precariously placed and already kind of venturing into the lands of hospice, um, that they understand after working with me, why knowing what the therapeutic restrictions are changes and shapes my plan of care. Why knowing what the diagnosis is, is going to change and shape my plan of care. But, um, I think um, to quote our sweet friend, we built the bridge. Um, I built the bridge with a lot of cookies and donuts <laughs> and um, inviting the early interventionist or um, talking to the OT and saying, hey, you want to grab a cup of coffee after this kid? Or, um, uh, you know, you, you, mm -hmm. people will admit I'll host a vino party on a Friday night where we all sit around and inevitably talk nerdy speech pathology things, even when we say we're not going to talk... <laughs> But um, I have found that once you get to know these people on um, on like a friendly basis, they're more willing to go to bat with me to help me co-treat and get the records. But um, I think that's why so many um, student clinicians are afraid of home health in their CF years mm -hmm. um, because of you are on an island. But I mean... South Carolina is a small state. I'm a Virginia girl. And when I moved here, I was on a super teeny tiny island where I came from a hospital and then landed in um, a state where I didn't know anybody and I never had worked early intervention before. And then six years later, here we are. And I love it. And when it changes. So if I can make a more populated island, so can you, friend. <laughs> My donuts. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> Uh, so in walking into an evaluation where you kind of, like you said, are going in blind, mm -hmm. you look at the child, you talk to the parent, you see what they're doing. What is your usual next step as far as assessment, providing any sort of strategies? What is your usual next move um okay so my normal um mo would be uh, typically first and foremost um it's positional um almost every single kid that i see their core is shot if we build our houses on sand they will shift and almost every single kid's core is shot they're either not properly aligned in the chair they're not properly alarmed head and neck um in uh caregiver loved ones or daycare providers arms when they're bottle feeding um and will change their position um a lot of times between that and then just simple changing of the flow rates on bottles if we go slow uh, for a lot of these kids, it sets them up for success. Um, and then I know in my like super long lecture, I get back to um, like, have you changed the flavor? And I harp on that. Have you considered that these neuroatypical kids have an abnormal gustatory cortex, that they have hypertrophy of the adenoids that are blocking the receptors of the nasopharynx. But like, honest to goodness, I get in people's um, kitchen cabinets, which is always kind of surprising because that <laughs> I'm a little intrusive, but um, how I cook in my home is different than how other people cook. And we know 
even though we have historically thought that those molecules don't cross the blood membrane um, barrier in utero, but it's true, it does. So these kids are literally bathed for however long the duration of the pregnancy, whether it be 23 weeks or God help them, the 41 and 42 weekers, um, they're used to eating what their mothers have eaten. And unfortunately, a lot of our first foods are sweet, like baby yogurts and baby oatmeals and the cereals, they're bland. And if we um, make it more robust, more hearty, I mean, for some of the kids, I'm thinking of our Monday morning little friend that would drink hot sauce. Mm -hmm. Um, That's who I think about. (laughs) Yep. Um, if, If we just change the flavors, the kids are more engaged in the food because they can taste it for the first time. Mm-hmm. But um, you and I have walked into houses where sometimes all of those changes are not enough. They don't get the aha because you can hear the strider at baseline and you know, hey, that kid sounds like they have laryngomalacia, trachomalacia, and they need to get to an ENT. So I'd say after doing all the positional and after doing all of the um, flavor changes, um, my next step is to make referrals. And um, the first place I refer nine times out of 10 is ENT, which I didn't get covered in grad school. Um, wish I had gotten covered in grad school, but I had a phenomenal, phenomenal ENT um, mentor me during my CF. Um, I mean, he was, he was brilliant. And I think if we had that opportunity, um, if even if like student clinicians across the nation had like one or two observations in an OR to see an ENT doing surgery, I see you nodding your head, I agree. folks. I agree. You, you can't see her, but she's like vigorously <laughs> nodding her head on camera. <laughs> it's the end of a long day. We're both looking a little busted and grateful. You can't see us. Um, uh, I think if we had that ENT option, then it would, it would help us. Um, next step for me is I get these people to, um, modifieds when it's, um, when I have significant concerns about, um, frank overt signs and symptoms of aspiration, or the etiology is so complex that my gut um, tells me I better get an instrumental, especially if the kid's been in PO. If the kid's been in PO up until now, I'm not going to go in and offer food out the gate. I'm going to make a referral for an instrumental, whether it be fees or a modified give or take size, stature, and etiology. How, how do you, I think that I've seen in the variety of settings that I've been in that some people aren't afraid to make referrals, but worry that don't always follow their gut and worry that, you know, this may not be what actually is going on or that they need to figure it out themselves. Like, what do you say as far as those people that are a little more timid to make referrals? Um, you do not have x-ray vision friend. (laughs) That's, that's what, that's my first thought is if we had x-ray vision, then radiologists across the world would no longer have a job. And that this is the one aspect of our career that we can harm a child and, or kill them. And so, um, make the referrals. It is better to err on the side of caution. However, with that being said, make sure that um, 
make sure that you're not over referring because I have had kids that have had numerous um, referrals for instrumentals. They get into the radiology suite and they're not even appropriate to open their mouth to a bolus. So that's like, they can't do that. Now where you're at right now, you're, you just came from an outpatient clinic and now you're inpatient and um, I'm sure your soup has similar opinions. I think that, it was cool to come from the mentality of outpatient where you're able to spend the whole hour and you're looking at every little aspect of their oral motor, every little aspect of the entire meal that they're consuming and you want more information, send them for a modified. But what I didn't understand until I went to inpatient was you have maybe you have five minutes of radiation that you can put this child through you have to be very cognizant of that and cognizant of the fact that this is not normal for a lot of the kids. You're putting them in for children that are bottle fed and maybe sideline, you're putting them upright and that's not necessarily what they're used to. And we've had a lot of children that have been referred and it just wasn't necessarily appropriate. And we do the best that we can to get give them the least restrictive diet, but I just, it took me a while to realize, okay, modified is supposed to set up a least restrictive diet, not supposed to tell you how they can handle an entire meal or every single consistency that, and how they do in every single consistency. I think, I think you hit on like the hardest part of the two worlds where home health and the folks that do, um, (laughs) Sorry, folks, we have a dog that's like hacking a lung real quick. <laughs> I wish you could see my home. We have three puppies, and they're all normally really, really good. But this is um, real world. Hold on one second. <laughs> okay. All right. We're back. Are we back? We're back. We're back. Okay. Real life faux pas, guys. And then my grandfather clock chimes. Can you hear it? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good sound. All right, whatever. All right. Well, that, but that's, that's the crux of it. We on Home Health World want everybody who's doing the swallow studies, whether it be a fees when they're breastfeeding and they can run the scope down or hooked up in radiology, we want the answers and we want them now. And we get super frustrated, but we forget that the swallow study is one moment in time. It's not indicative of how the kid's going to do at seven o'clock in the evening when they have dinner, but they had school all day long and they had to ride the special needs bus to and from school and they don't have proper positioning and support and they're fatigued out. Mm -hmm. But we forget the stressors of you guys have to get these tiny humans eating something that's really disgusting, yes. really nasty, and it's in a very scary environment, whereas we're doing it in home where it should be positive and uplifting. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's all right. So we need to canoodle on that. We need to discuss further in, in a future session on how we can create that open line of communication because... Mm-hmm. That's something we got to fix. Okay. All right. I digress. Squirrel. Carrying on. <laughs> um, so I know in going into evaluations with you, you, I follow, as you call it, Michelle Land. Um, <laughs> it's a scary place sometimes. <laughs> because there's, I mean, there's not a, it's not 
like you're doing a bedside swallow in the hospital, you're taking in all these different pieces and parts. And I guess through following you all summer, I was able to kind of follow where you were going during your assessment. But what are some of the most important things that people should focus on when they're looking at the child, when you're observing the parent, feeding them or them feeding themselves? Um, I think that's saying, how do I connect my dots? Pretty much. Yeah. yeah. How, how do I, how do, how do we connect the dots in Michelle land? How does someone that doesn't have the years of experience that you have, who just can look at a child and say, do this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I have, I have an internal data bank in my head and I call it my food blog and I work through the families. Um, because normally it takes me a good two to three weeks at least to kind of get a, a clearer picture in my head of where I need to go with these people and with these kids. I mean, I'm not going to like walk in the, no clinician should be able to walk in the door and fix everything like that. I mean, if, Absolutely. if you are, then I want to hold your hand and have that. <laughs> Great. That put me out of a job, but I'm just kidding. Um, all right. So I go through with the families and I create a really in-depth food blog and, um, it's tailored to each kid, but it has a general overview and that helps me connect my dots. Um, so on my food blog, I want to go through a 24 hour period. I want to go through, um, uh, when does, um, when does the first feed begin and how is it administered? Are we doing an NG tube, a G tube, a GJ, a J? Um, what's the volume? What's the flow rate? How long is it? Um, also, when do they get uh, a PO trial? And then with respect to the PO trial, what's um, the consistency? What's the color? What's the temperature? Um, what is the spice? I mean, don't just tell me. You, I mean, you can feed your kid mashed potatoes, but I can guarantee you they are probably not my mama's version of partially Parmesan mashed potatoes because she makes some really good partially Parmesan mashed potatoes. Mm -hmm. That's a little different than what I make, which is pretty much open up a box and dump it and then add milk. <laughs> so I'm not known for my culinary skills. <laughs> Sorry, mom. Um, I take it another step further. I want to time out um, when do they have their um, medicines administered and what are those medicines? Um, there's a really good book, and I know I showed it to you like a year ago. It's called Drugs and Dysphagia. Um, off the top of my head, I cannot remember the author, but it's a, it's read. Um to be fair, it's dated. It's from 2006. Um, we need a newer version, but I don't know when it's going to be updated. But it goes through every medicine that was currently on the market in 2006 from peds to adults, including like Parkinson's, Alzheimer meds. Um, and um, it breaks down how those specific drugs can cause a dysphagia. And, and we know this literature with like... <laughs> like our altered mental status with like mm -hmm. a UTI and how the management of that can result in like short-term dysphagia. But we forget that these kids, some of our kids have urinary tract infections, especially like our spina bifida CP population that are like diaper bound for long-term. Mm -hmm. um, 
So in my food log, we've got um, G-tube trials, food trials, um, medicines, liquids, and how the liquids are administered. I want that included. And then I think what makes mine different than some of the other approaches I've seen, I really, really, really need to know about the poop. Um, <laughs> were, you, were, were you there with me the day the mom saved the diaper? No, I just heard the story. Okay. <laughs> I like how the look on your face is that reflex for like, <laughs> um, yes, but we need to know how often uh-huh. in relation to all of this going in are our babies pooping? What's the color? What's the texture? What's, um, uh, the volume, um, it, do they have tiny little hard poops followed by like a massive poop? Because that can be like a massive liquid blowout. Cause that could be indicative of a blockage, um, within like large and small intestines. Um, I then also want to know, um, about their wet diapers or, you know, if we, if we can't tell by like all the wet diapers, um, if they go to the bathroom, like how many times a day they're trying to tinkle because all of that will tell me whether or not, um, they're feeling full, they're feeling association. And uh, that those are those are some of the variables in Michelle Land. And when I get all of that together, um, when all of that is put together, then I can kind of lay out a game plan. Um, and that takes, but you need two or three weeks to do data collection to kind of build it because you you can't build a feeding intervention off of only forty eight hours worth of data. And sometimes it can take weeks or months to get families on board with actually giving me the data. Right. Um, and that's frustrating. Um, and sometimes it's not because the families don't get the importance. It's because the families have like three other children or they too have a pack of dogs in their home or um, they've got a caregiver followed by daycare or all these other variables that they're trying to that they're trying to struggle with. Um, but once I see the chart and I also see it in conjunction with like when they're napping that, um, it kind of connects my dots. Mm -hmm. What do you think? That sounds like Michelle Ann. Yeah. (laughs) A lot of squirrels, a touch of ADD. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, even when we would go in and we'd get a child who I remember when we saw our friend that has Wolf Hirschhorn and we sat in the car and we looked up, you know, symptoms and typical things. And it was an automatic, okay, they have hypotonia. What's that probably going to cause? What might that look like? Like almost preparing yourself for all these things that might be going on so that you can start the wheel spinning of what might possibly be affecting their overall feeding and swallowing. And that's why getting back to that first part of having access to the medical records, man, that makes or breaks a body. Because if we don't understand what it is that, if we don't know what we're going into, we're already, I mean, our first eval is just trying to play catch up. Mm -hmm. Um, And I mean, in theoretically, in an inpatient setting, y'all have more access to records. And the doctors are right. I mean, most of the time you just 
you have to find them, but you go find the doctor and you can talk to them. That's not something that you can just walk down the hall and do. No, I'm, I'm picking up phone calls and hoping and praying that the nurse on the other end actually believes that I'm a legitimate therapist, even though I send consent to release medical records or fax that other stuff in. And um, I've had a nurse tell me flat out, she goes, honey, you don't need the medical records. You work in the home. You're okay. And I was like, <laughs> like, let's not poison the children. Let's not drown the children. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> oh, she was new. We're all new. We're all newbies at one point in time. But um, that was really professionally frustrating. And tell me somebody else out there has had that um, uh, event happen to them as well and that I'm not the only one. Um, but that's just it. We've got to know from the get go what it is that we're what it is that we're looking at. And that's why it's nice to forge those relationships to try to expedite the medical record process. Mm -hmm. But then over time, after you've done it for a while, you get that evidence-based map in your head of, um, okay, this is a more common diagnosis. This is what I'm going to anticipate seeing. Like with a kid that has autism spectrum disorders, I'm going to anticipate, um, significant constipation. I'm going to anticipate um, a quote unquote picky sensory eater, which to me and Michelle Lynn tells me, dude, they got a ton going on with their gut and their esophagus. And is their enteric nerve system even fully intact? And when was the last time somebody actually took this seriously and did a swallow study and or an esophagram to rule out a structural abnormality? But mm, I'm, I'm very impassioned. That was a soapbox I went out on. <laughs> <laughs> well I also think that one thing that and one thing that made me love home health was that sometimes I mean not only do you not get the medical records but you're one of the first people to see them because since babies you know breathe eat and sleep mm -hmm. you see them for a feeding difficulty and you may be the one that looks at them and says okay something else is going on and having to help them through that process of getting diagnoses and I think that that in itself is a skill and something that takes time because I've seen you talk to parents and automatically, I remember you saying, if you tell a kid they can do something, they can do it. And mm -hmm. that always stuck with me and you telling a parent, you know, you need to hold this child to the same standards that you would hold a typically developing child because they have so much more potential and the ability to achieve than a lot of people may think. Yeah. So I think that process is really cool. We, um, and that's what a, a lot of people forget that we're the first face of Holland. Like when we go in, like you can either land in Paris with a pregnancy or you land in Holland. And sometimes the speech path, man, they're the first one to meet you when you land, get off the plane, whether it be in the NICU or 
and and you see it and mm-hmm. at where you're at now, you get discharged at 36 weeks. And trust me, I gave birth to a 35 weeker and a 36 weeker, and we were a readmit at mm-hmm. 37 weeks. Um, I mean, cause he caught RSV, but you know, that bear bless him. <laughs> um, but we are the ones that are frontline. We're holding the ground. We're advocating with these families. We're helping them navigate getting into early intervention system because man, they might just come home with an immature suck pattern or, um, I mean, hopefully they'll be out of the transitions or out of the immature and into the transition stage, but like they're, they're, they're just learning. And then all of a sudden we realize that, Hey, they're not turning towards the source of sound or, Hey, they're not, um, reacting the way that they should. And we're the ones encouraging them, pushing them and handholding them to get them to take that next step. But I feel very, very strongly because of my special needs brother-in-law that if you tell a kid they can't, they won't. But I mean, my mother-in-law and father-in-law held my husband and my brother-in-law to the exact same standards. And there's a reason that my brother-in-law, who is microcephalic, flaccid CP, autism, cortical vision impairment, intellectual disability, can do everything that he's doing. And that's because it was the same as their son who went to, you know, a major college. Like you will, you will, you will do this for yourself. You can do it. And we got to start that out when they're itty bitty. And for our little ones that shows up as, you know, Hey, you let's start with a food log. Let's start with getting medical records. Let's start with connecting the dots. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. I don't think I scared you from home health. (laughs) You were phenomenal. Oh, my families and my babies fell in love with you. That's awesome. <laughs> Including my own tiny humans. <laughs> so. Well, you get to build. I think there's so many like benefits. There's not necessarily um, weaknesses to certain, you know, um, settings, but there's different challenges and different strengths. And the thing I loved about home health was those relationships that you get to build and you see those children so early Mm -hmm. and yeah, I mean, that doesn't mean that they don't have a serious history and they don't have a lot of things that you really need to look at before, you know, doing any sort of treatment, but you lay the groundwork, you help the parents like mold them. And I mean, when I was at Pitt, it was I didn't even realize in undergrad, you know, about pediatric dysphagia. I mean, we had Dr. Coyle who Girl crush. I knew. Oh my God, I would have <laughs> I knew all, you know, I knew a lot more about that side with the adults, but just learning about peds and it's just a different process and both are, you know, amazing, but you really feel like you're you're helping that parent set them up for great things down the road. Okay. So here's the question. If, and some of, some of our friends have gone into home health for CF. I mean, you're, you're getting ready to graduate. You're getting ready to look at CFs. What, what would you tell somebody? What would you tell a classmate? 
that if they were looking into it, what, what are like two or three bits of advice that you would lay out to them? Um, I think that a big thing is, yeah, we're new and yeah, we may have not had a ton of experience. Some people may not have had a placement in home health, but trust your gut Mm -hmm. because I think we know a lot more than we think we do. Um, I think that reaching out to mentors, other professionals with questions, because I found that, especially in our field, so many people just want to help and want to share their knowledge. And Mm -hmm. so you really use those resources. It's not a sign of weakness. I think it's a sign of strength to sit there and be like, I don't necessarily know what to do. I need to do what's best for this child. Yes. And I think the third thing would be patience. Be patient because like you said, it might take you a while to figure out what's actually going on. You know, what the one thing, you know, might be that can really help this child or, and the fact that, you know, especially if you have a child who is G2 fed or has been MPO, they have a long history of bad experiences probably with PO. So you need to be aware of that, that it's going to take them a while. And that's what I like about the little victories. I think in home health, you get, you know, you realize what a big deal it might be that they took that, they finally put that food to touch their lip. It might not even have gone, they might, but I think that's really cool. Nicely stated. Yes. See, see students out there, you, you too can do this. So say a thing amazing. <laughs> and none of my little people bit you. You didn't get bit. So you got quite little. No. I do remember you getting boofed on, but no bites. Not so right, no. <laughs> there's that. Okay. But you, you wrapped it up perfectly. We, we have to lean in. We have to not be afraid to ask for help. I mean, if you're the smartest person in the room, get out and get a new room. Like that's, that's got to happen. And that's why we have our team. Um, that's why we desperately need to um, uh, ask to co-treat with the OT. And if you can convince them the PT, because I have had PTs that did not feel that our, our co-treatments were clinically warranted and that that's a hard pill to swallow. Um, especially when, I mean, there's a fabulous article out there, Godwin and Rogers, y'all it's in a SIG 13. I can't remember if it was Godwin and Rogers or Rogers and Godwin, but it was a SIG 13 within the last two years. And they talk about the efficacy of co-treatment with OTPT and speech and, um, uh, rapid fire improvement. Um, but do your co-treatments, don't be afraid to ask for an instrumental when it's clinically indicated. But like you said, bear in mind, these babies get microscopic amounts of radiation at a time and it's not full picture, but maybe reach out to the clinician who's doing the eval in advance and relay your concerns for what you're seeing at home. Because if you pick up that phone or shoot them an email and have that open channel of communication, the clinician on the receiving end will say, Hey, okay, I know what they're troubleshooting. So I know how to target my microscopic amount of radiation with that kid, but, um, keep a dynamic food log. 
And remember, it's going to take time to build a better understanding of what that particular kid's looking for. But we can treat pediatric dysphagia in home health. We are allowed to do this. Now, different states might say you can't code with a 92526 and you might have to code with a 92507, but that state by state, <laughs> you can do this. <laughs> All right. Okay. I just saw the clock. We have got to switch to um, uh, Q&A time. Um, but before we go, I'm going to shamelessly plug my sweet, amazing Erin, who is getting ready to graduate. So hint, hint, hint. If you know of anyone that's hiring an amazing uh, pediatric, uh, you know, CF candidate, shoot me an email. <laughs> That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind and feed those babies. Hey, hey, hey.